we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. We're in the book of 2 Samuel and uh, in the 23rd chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We've been in the study of the life of David. And uh, if you were here last week, you know we, we, we sort of bypassed these verses to get to that list of mighty men in recognition of Father's Day. And so this morning we come back to these verses that we missed uh, beginning in verse 1, if you'll read along with me, we'll read through verse 7. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me or made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. The Bible tells us here in verse number one that these be the last words of David. I don't think this is necessarily the last words that David ever uttered. I believe this is the last official proclamation of David. This is the last revelation from God to his people through David, his king. And so these are important words. They are his last words, and they are lasting words. They are significant because they point to the coming of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. David's message communicates here for us the hope of humanity. It, it answers the problems and, and provides the answer for those problems. It delivers the benefits that the world has looked for for thousands of years of human history. And what is it that people look for in their rulers? What is it that they hope for in their lifetime? A place where they can live and thrive, a place of freedom, a place of justice, equity, peace, and prosperity. Those summarize the hopes of men in their earthly life and an earthly kingdom. And when David wrote this song, he is speaking of these things 
and he's providing us the answer for those things. And David is looking forward as he writes. He's looking forward to the day when the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. Today, you and I, we look back. We look back to that day 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. As we look back to that day, we look back to his death. We look back to his resurrection. And we look forward to his return. And David is looking forward here. He's looking forward to the coming of the king. He's looking forward to that day. As the songwriter wrote, when the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You see, this promise concerning the coming of the Messiah was a promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden when God created them and made them and gave them eternal life. He made them perfectly without sin. But they chose to rebel against him, and the consequences of their sin began to become evident immediately. And God gave the promise in that awful moment that he would send of the seed of the woman a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 12, God communicates that promise yet again and reveals that that promised one will come through the seed of Abraham. As we come to the close of the book of Genesis, we read that as Jacob blesses his sons, he reveals again that that promise will come through the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Judah, of the seed of Abraham. In, in 2 Samuel chapter number 7, we find that God has revealed that that promise will also come through the seed of David. One of David's descendants will sit upon the throne, and he will rule and reign forever. And just as we noted in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Joseph, the Bible said, these all died in faith. They had not received the promises, but they believed them. They were persuaded of them, and they embraced them, and they died speaking of these promises. Here we find David in his dying words, in his last message to the people of Israel, as given to him from God, David dies in faith, believing the covenant promise that God had made, that he was going to send his son who would rule and reign over this earth, who would establish his kingdom forever. And so David is pointing beyond the hopelessness and despair of this life to the hope of an eternity with God. Notice, if you would, please, here in these verses, in verse number one, he says, now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, David begins by mentioning his humble beginnings, the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. He said, and the man who was raised up on high, the man who would become king. And how did he become king? Because God chose him. Look again as we follow along in verse 1. The anointed of the God of Jacob. God anointed him as king. He sent Samuel to anoint him. 
And the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the spirit of the Lord spake by me. You see, these aren't simply David's last words. These are God's words through David one final time. This is the inspired book of the Bible. Would you turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. David is giving us the importance and significance of his words by saying to us that this word is not simply his word, that these words are God's words, that the spirit of the Lord spake by him. Paul echoes that for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. I think it's important for us to note this this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture, that is the Bible that you hold in your hand. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration means to be breathed. It literally is, is the breath of God given to us through the Spirit of God. God has inspired his word. He inspired human penman as he inspired David to record what we read in verses 1 through 7, these final words, as he inspired David to, to write what we read in the Psalms and in other places throughout Scripture. These are the words of God given through a human instrument, inspired words, and they are profitable, the Bible says in verse 16, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. You see, these words that David is giving to us in verses 1 through 7, they, they are the words of God. He says, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me again in verse 2, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. My foundation, he said my rock, the one who has upheld me, has spoken. And what does he speak about? He speaks about his kingdom. Not the kingdom of David, because we find David here, an old man who is frail, who has faltered in his life. All the promise of that young man who slew the giant, who played his heart for Saul, all the promise of it, all the hopes of it. And there were many good days, but those good days gave way to the bad. David's sin with Bathsheba. And then David's attempt to cover up his sin. The demise of David's family and the destruction of it, the rebellion of his son Absalom and those within the nation of Israel who also joined in on that rebellion the lives that were lost, the pain that was suffered, the deaths that were experienced. And at the end of his life, David says, look, I wasn't the answer. But God's son will be the answer. We live in a time where our nation has not seemingly been this divided, at least within our lifetime. 
We live in a time where it seems as if we have a vacancy of leadership. The, the political season is getting ready to be in full swing. We'll have people who will be running for office and making promises and telling us that they can bring us peace and equity and justice and prosperity. But if life has taught us, if, if life has taught us anything, it has revealed to us that the answer is not found in a political candidate or a political party. The answer can only be found in Jesus. And that's where David is pointing us. And as he points us to the coming of the king and his rule and his dominion, I want you to note three things this morning. I hope you'll write them down. The first of all is the administration of the king. What kind of king do men need and what kind of king will he be? Well, look, if you would, please, in verse 3. The latter half of the third verse begins with this statement, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Now, I think there's some things for us to consider here. First of all, men need a ruler. Why do men need a ruler? Because men are wicked. Men are sinful. Men are abusive. Men are oppressive. Men are greedy. Men are liars and deceivers, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The word for men here is the word Adam. And as we've been learning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Adam all die. You see, those who have a natural birth, born as the descendants, uh, descendants of Adam, are born in sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as sinners, we are dying men. And we are men who are in darkness. And so we live in a dark society. And men need a ruler, someone to teach them the right way, someone to hold them accountable. And notice the Bible says, he that ruleth over men must be just. You see, there are requirements that God has given for rulers. First of all, that they be just, that they be righteous. The problem is there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. But we understand that we are made righteous through faith in Christ. It is his righteousness that is imputed to our account the moment that we receive him as Savior, the moment that we trust him, the moment that we confess our sin, we are forgiven of our sin. And his right, the trespasses and the iniquities, the evil thoughts and the evil deeds, the deceptions, the lies, all of it that, that we have committed against God, God in the person of his son made the payment for our sin. And when we receive him as Savior, all those sins are blotted out. The red blood of Christ has made us clean and his righteous record is then ours. But if we're going to have the right kind of ruler, he must be just, but there's only one just one and that's Jesus. We're getting ready, as I mentioned, to enter into this political season. There'll be many candidates making a lot of promises and telling us about what they plan to do and how they plan to bring a equitable and just society. You'll be amazed, though, to see that many of them would not even openly avow to be a Christian. 
In fact, I only know of one who has made such a statement. There may be more that professes Christ as Savior and seems to live a life that supports it. But God said, if you're going to have rulers on the earth, they must be just. Our vice president stood in Charlotte, North Carolina yesterday to bemoan the fact that abortion laws have been restricted in the state of North Carolina. To tell us that if you want a child to have a chance to survive in the womb and be born, you are oppressing women. There's a need for righteousness, isn't there? A need for righteousness. That's just one example of many. By the way, it's not exclusive to any party. We've been lied to by both. Our hope is not in either. Our hope is only in Jesus. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. That means according to the scripture, according to God's word. What has God said? What are God's commandments? Do we acknowledge them? Do we confess them? And do we plan to live by them? During the years of the Scottish Reformation, John Knox and many others preached the Bible and began to educate Scottish children concerning the truth of the Bible. And the most illiterate country in Europe became the most literate through education of the Scriptures. In a wonderful book that's written, How the Scots Influenced or Shaped the Western World, we find that out of that Reformation and out of those biblical educations that were received by the children of Scotland, that the whole idea of freedom and justice and the, the, the very founding principles of our nation were born out of that revelation and knowledge of the Scripture. You see, if you want justice, you have to honor God and you have to fear God. And that's what he says. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Notice verse 4. And he shall be as a light of the morning when the sun riseth, The darkness is dispelled. The cold air is warmed. The dark night gives way to light. There's the hope of a new day. And when Jesus comes, the darkness will be dispelled. Even a morning without clouds is the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. The barren spots, the desert places will give way to life. The tender grass will shoot forth. The green of life, the green of spring will appear when you have the right ruler. In other words, there'll be flourishing. There'll be prosperity. There'll be life. There'll be joy. This is the administration of the king. And outside of him, it will not be experienced. And so, as David looks to the coming of the king, he tells us of his administration. He will be righteous. He will rule in the fear of God. It will be a time of refreshing and life. Well, secondly, we see the salvation of the sinner. Look in verse 5. Although my house be not so with God, but David's house 
his sons, his children, they didn't live up to this. Yet hath yet he, speaking of God, hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. He said, despite my failures and my inabilities, God has made a covenant with me, and he is my salvation. He is my desire. By the way, despite my failures and my inabilities, I enjoy the covenant that God has made with me. And if you know him this morning as your Savior, despite your inabilities and despite your failures, you are a beneficiary of a covenant that the Lord Jesus Christ has made with you. It is a covenant. The Bible speaks of in Hebrews 13.20, or 13.20, it is a covenant that is made sure by the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ that was shed for me. You see, this king came to save sinners. He came to those who were in rebellion against him. He came to them in love and extended them the terms of peace that if they would trust in him, he would forgive them and re reconcile them to himself. He took on the enemy. He took on the enemy of sin. He, he, the Bible said, was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He, in the Garden of Gethsemane, drank the cup of our sin. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So all of my sin, all of my failures was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he died in my place. He died under the condemnation that I had upon me. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He took on the enemy of sin. That's one of my enemies. He took on Satan, one of my enemies. He took on death, one of my enemies. And he suffered and shed his blood in the battle and in the conflict against my enemies. He gave up the ghost. He was placed in a tomb, and it looked as if he had been defeated. But on the third day, he came out of that tomb victorious. He had conquered my enemies. He had gone to battle for me. And he went to battle for you. And now he's made a covenant with us. It's an everlasting covenant. It's ordered in all things. God's taking care of everything. And sure, it's certain. It's sealed in his blood. You and I can rest in that covenant. That covenant tells me that my sin is forgiven. That covenant tells me that I have a place in God's kingdom. That covenant tells me that no matter what befalls me in this life, as the choir sang this morning, he's always been faithful to me. What a glorious covenant. A promise that God has made to his people. And the Bible tells us that all the promises of Jesus Christ are in him, yea and amen. He is faithful and he is true. And David said, he said concerning this covenant, he said, 
for this is all my salvation and all my desire. I couldn't ask for anything more. God has given me everything I need. Haggai prophesied in Haggai 2 and verse 7. And he said, I will shake, speaking, this is the Lord speaking through Haggai, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Who is that desire of all nations? It's Jesus. He's the desire of all nations. And David said, wait a minute, I have failed. My kingdom has faltered, and and Solomon's kingdom is going to falter, and, and his children after that, they're going to falter. But there's coming one who will not fail, who will not falter. He is the desire of every nation. Salvation of the sinner. But then lastly, we see the destruction of the wicked. Notice in verse 6, but the sons of Belial. That literally means the worthless ones. What makes them worthless? Their rebellion against God, their hatred, their enmity toward God. Now remember, all are sinners. But all sinners have an opportunity to come to Jesus, to recognize the king, to bow to him, to be reconciled to him. But there are those who, no matter what he has done, still reject him. They despise him. They hate him. That's who David is speaking of, the enemies of God. The sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away. Do you know that when God made this earth, there were no thorns upon it? I imagine you could pick blackberries all day long without ever having to be concerned. You could enjoy the roses. There were no thorns. Thorns are the consequences of sin and the curse of God upon the ground because of man's sin. And he compares these wicked men to thorns. They should be thrust away. That means they're going to be cast out. Psalm 2.9 speaks of this and says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, God extends mercy to all sinners during this, this age, but there's coming a time when he comes that he will come in judgment. He will cast them out. He's going to remove them from the earth. He will contain them. Notice what the Bible says. They cannot be taken with hands, but the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear. In other words, if you're going to handle these briars, you've got to have, you got to have some, some, some weapons and you have to have some armor that will protect you uh, from the thorn. And they'll all be cast out and they'll all be contained and then they'll all be consumed and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. The Bible says in Psalm 91 and verse 7, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. You say, is hell a real place? Yes, it is. Why did God make hell? Well, the Bible said he prepared it for the devil and his angels. You see, God prepared a place for you called heaven. He prepared a place for the devil and his angels called hell. But those who join in the rebellion with Satan and his angels find themselves on the way to hell because of their sin. 
And the Bible speaks, if you'll turn there with me to the book of Revelation, we'll close here. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. The Bible speaks of the reality of hell. David is looking forward to the coming of the king. The king came in battle and he won the victory over sin and death and Satan. The king ascended into heaven and he made you and I ministers of reconciliation. But one day he's coming to rule and to reign. And David also was looking forward to that day. And that day is spoken of here in Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 7. The Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will rule upon this earth for a thousand years. Only then will the earth realize what the earth is always longed for, a ruler who will rule in equity and in peace and in justice and in prosperity. A ruler who will truly rule in righteousness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will govern the affairs of this world for a thousand years. And the Bible tells us that at the end of the thousand years, if you'll notice in Revelation 20 and verse 7, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea." Notice that, please, that after there's been a thousand years of perfect, just government, the devil will be loosed, and he will gather an army so large that it says the number of the sand on the seashore. What does this speak of? It speaks of the glory of God, and it speaks of the depravity and wickedness of man. You see, we hear all kinds of arguments today against the existence of God. If God were just, why does he allow people to suffer? If God were just, why does he allow war? If God were just, why does he allow the oppressors? And what God is doing throughout the dispensations of time is he is revealing his glory. He is revealing the depravity and wickedness of the human heart. And after a thousand years of perfect rule, there's going to be an innumerable army who are willing to follow the devil and rebel against Jesus. They're thorns. And there will always be thorns until the end when Jesus removes them. Now look at what happens in verse 9. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. I mean, this is, this is a large number, and here they come against Jerusalem and against the saints of God. They're coming, like the Pharaoh coming after the children of Israel before they cross through the sea. But notice what happens. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The battle was over before it got started. This is going to happen. This is what the Lord is going to do. These thorns will be utterly burned. Verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you believe in a literal burning hell? Yes, 
Why? Because the Bible speaks of it. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and the Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, that's those who did not believe us, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. This is the resurrection of the dead, to face God and be judged. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All those who reject Jesus will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever with no hope, with no mercy. you have an opportunity today to come to Jesus. He loves you. He died to save you. He came to defeat your enemies. And if you'll receive him as Savior, the good news is you'll never face this second death. You'll be with God for all eternity. If you don't have the hope of that today, I want to I want to encourage you today to find in the altar a place of prayer, to to meet with someone here in the front in just a moment, or to talk with someone before you leave today and say, I need to take care of this. I need to be saved. And we'll pray with you and show you from God's word how that you can be saved, how that you can receive the forgiveness of sin by faith in Christ, how that you can escape this awful judgment. And that's our prayer for you today. And Christian friends, may God help us to understand that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in him. And as we go through the trials and burdens and difficulties of life, let us not lose faith in God. He has made with us an everlasting covenant, one that is ordered in all things and sure, and we can trust him. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.